to OT Uncorked, the podcast for wine-loving OTs. I'm your host, Miranda Rennie. On OT Uncorked, we uncork hot topics in occupational therapy and a bottle of wine with experts in the field. In this two-part interview, I talked with Rob Ferguson, an occupational therapist in the University of Michigan Health System, whose practice involves the use of virtual contexts, virtual reality, gaming, and other computer technologies to help clients reach their occupational goals. Right now, virtual reality is kind of a buzzword, both in our profession and in the general culture. And I think it's relevant for us as OTs and OTAs to identify our place in the conversation and our role in the use of virtual reality and these other technologies. In this episode, Rob shares helpful insights into how OTs can adopt technologies in thoughtful, client-centered, and occupation-based ways. This episode, we're throwing the wine cork out the window and enjoying local beer instead. Keep listening to hear what beers Rob and I try, and let us know what you think by visiting otuncorked.com and posting in the comments. Rob, why don't you start by introducing yourself to the listeners? I'm Rob Ferguson. I'm the uh, Stroke Rehab Program Manager at Michigan Medicine uh, University Hospital. I run the computer therapy lab, and I'm also a clinical specialist in neurorehabilitation and therapeutic technology. All right, before we get into the topic of virtual reality, gaming, and just use of, of really cool technologies in therapy, I've got to ask you a very important question, and that's what are you drinking today as we talk? I am drinking uh, Bell's Two-Hearted Ale from uh, Michigan, the west side of Michigan. It's uh, most of Bell's beers are seasonal, and the Two-Hearted Ale is an American IPA, and uh, IPAs are my preference in beer, but I drink everything from uh, Schaefer's when I was younger, which is not recommended anybody drink, to uh, to my preference now as I'm, I'm much older, uh, is I, I drink IPAs. I prefer those. Yeah. There's a lot of really good beers in this area in the Midwest. I don't know what it's about, but I'm from the East Coast, and... Not that there's nothing against East Coast beers, but I am loving that about the Midwest. Well, the thing that I'm enjoying is that Yingling keeps moving west. So the fact that I can get Yingling in Ohio now makes me happy. Now, Yingling, although it's not an IPA, is is uh, one, another one of my favorite beers. So I'm just glad that it keeps creeping further now. I'm just waiting for it to come into Michigan. So There you go. That's awesome. I'm from eastern Pennsylvania, so we're not too far, far out of there. Yeah. And today I... You being from Michigan, me living in Ohio, I had to go with a Columbus beer, right? Even if we're not, you know, going to acknowledge the rivalry, we got to have at least rivaling beers. <laughs> well, one of my one of my favorite hashtags is beyond the rivalry. So usually when I'm uh, Twitter chatting or, or sending a tweet about Ohio State, uh, it's usually to the folks that I'm friends with at Ohio State and and usually about, you know, beyond the rivalry. So that's perfect. Except <laughs> During football season. Of course, of course. That's a whole different story. <laughs> well, I am drinking, okay, I'm drinking a beer from Land Grant Brewing Company, which is a local Columbus brewery. And this is called the Spring Quarter Belgian Blonde with local honey, it says. I'm not typically 
into blonde. <laughs> <laughs> but this is really good so far. It's promising. Good. I needed a nice refreshing beer because it's finally feeling like spring around here. Well, after my doctoral student is uh, finished, he's from Ohio State, I'll uh, I'll have to have a, a land grant beer with him. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So many good ones. My favorite one from them, though, is actually called Urban Sombrero. That one, if you're going to try one, that's that's my recommendation to you. So why is it called Urban Sombrero? If I recall, it has like kind of hints of spice and pepper underneath it and it's a really good beer it doesn't get old i would know? try that yeah i really recommend it it's also got a really cool label so not that that's important not that that's important <laughs> always <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome okay so we've got a michigan and ohio beyond the rivalry beers this is great yep so i'm really curious a little bit more about how you got into working in the computer therapy lab and how your clinical experience with stroke rehabilitation and then technology came together. So tell me a little bit about your kind of your path to getting to this point. Kind of what practice settings were you in? Where'd you start? How'd you get here? <laughs> well, I, uh, when I graduated, it was uh, just after the Balanced Budget Act. And so I actually couldn't get a job in Michigan. <clears throat> so I moved to Ohio for a couple of years uh, where while I was in Ohio, we won the national championship. Uh, so that was really great. I uh, was probably probably the only one happy that year. Uh, <laughs> since then, it's been a bit more rough. But um, I, I, after a couple of years, I was able to come back uh, to Michigan. I've worked at uh, University of Michigan ever since. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I started out uh, an inpatient rehab, but then had a, a short detour on trauma burn for a year, then acute care therapy. But I really missed the uh, establishing longer-term relationships with patients and kind of seeing them progress through um, and recover kind of through that early part of their, um, their either their trauma or their change in, in the way that their life has been affected. So uh, I went back to rehab, and after a few years, um, I was always interested in neural rehab because of how I got into occupational therapy. Um, when I got out of the Army, I joined the National Guard, uh, and uh, my very first, no, not my first, one of my two first drills um, I crushed my ulnar nerve in my dominant right hand, lost the function of my hand for about six months. Um, I had a bad experience in VA occupational therapy, and uh, I was not happy with occupational therapy. I thought, what a stupid occupation, what a stupid job. And uh, so uh, I, got, I, I was bitter about it, and I was going to be um, getting into special education, um, into physical otherwise handicap. And... Uh, instruction. So it wasn't a big leap to change over to OT, but I really wasn't going to do OT until my uh, sister-in-law, um, she's a teacher in Wisconsin, and she told me I really needed to relook at occupational therapy because my experience was not what, as an educator, she knows what occupational therapy is. She knew much more about it than I did. Uh, so then I, when I took a look at it, I thought, wow, there was a lot of stuff that I should have been taught how to do. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I tell people a lot of time, I mean, wiping your butt with your non-dominant hand is not easy. <laughs> and it literally, the first time I had to, to, to do toilet hygiene, it was about five minutes of trying to figure out how I coordinate. I was really a left-handed motor moron <laughs> when I was trying to do that. And, uh, but I realized that would have been something that would have really helped me. So I, I became an OT out of spite mm-hmm. and anger, not because of some true altruistic, uh, great, thing, but um, it, it ended up being that way. But that was my first interest in, neuro, in the neural part 
of occupational therapies because of my own neurological uh, injuries. Um, but then uh, I got really passionate about stroke rehab and TBI. And um, so that's kind of where I geared most of my education and training. I became a clinical specialist in neuro rehab. And then in 2008, uh, uh, Doug Rakowski came uh, from Ranchos Los Amigos to U of M. Um, his wife was a physician and she um, got a fellowship and then became an attending physician uh, there. And uh, he came and started the computer therapy lab. They had something very similar at Ranchos. And um, it literally started with a monitor on top of a file box, <laughs> um, but he was able to get some grant funding and uh, establish the lab. And, and at first, and, and he'll be the, he, he loves telling everybody that I actually hated the lab when it first got started. I thought, um, I just don't see how this is going to work with patients. And I, re I really was. I, I, I thought this is just kind of sketchy. This is just assistive technology. And then I learned the difference between assistive and therapeutic technologies. Um, and then once uh, he and I started collaborating and he was able to teach me a little bit about it and I opened my, my mind up a little bit and stopped being such a jerk. Uh, uh, and I was telling him, well, there are other ways that you could do this. So he was teaching me about the technology and I was teaching him how he could kind of take it to the next step beyond um, exercise repetition and um, in some of the basic capacity building things that, that it can do. And um, so we started collaborating a lot, um, teaching each other how we could incorporate therapy interventions with the technology. Um, and the, the lab grew from there. And then about uh, boy, three and a half years coming up on four years soon. Wow, it's been that long. Um, his wife got a job in California. So they moved back to California and I took over the lab for him. So, um, and basically the computer therapy lab is, um, and it's an extra surface for our inpatient rehab patients. And uh, the primary therapist will refer patients to the lab. And in the lab, we'll um, treat any, any patient with any diagnosis. Uh, the, the key is the way we use technology is we use it to support a patient's rehab goals with the focus being on what it is that the functional occupation that they're working on. Um, and then we use the technology as a tool. And that's, I think, the biggest thing that people have a hard time getting is that it's not the technology that's the therapy, it's the therapist that provides the therapy. Technology is just a tool, that's all it is. And it's how you use your clinical reasoning and your creativity to teach a person how to put their socks on with a computer or to wipe their butt with a computer. Um, and it's not, you know, you're not doing it with a keyboard. <laughs> um, uh, but, but basically you're, you're utilizing the technology to simulate the movement, um, but within the context of a virtual activity, a, a game or, whatever the patient maybe has an interest in. So after we do a quick a quick occupational profile with a patient, we'll talk about what their interests are, but then we'll also say, well, what are the goals? You know, your therapists have identified these goals that you're working on, what's important for you? And they kind of say what's really the important thing. And that's what we try to match their interests. So say if they're, if they're into hunting, then we may find some virtual activity that's related to hunting and we'll use hunting using the technology to teach a person whatever the goal, their goal is functionally. So if it's to put their pants on their shirt on, to feed themselves, whatever, whatever, the technology and the activity of the game allows us to get a lot of repetition, a lot of intensity. The, the dose is very high. Most of our treatment sessions are 250 to 300 repetitions. When we get into virtual reality, it goes up and in, sometimes into the thousands of repetition and movement. And um, there's just something about the virtual context that it, people get really engaged with. Um, and it, it's really interesting to see because people have no idea. They lose a full concept of 
of, of what they're doing. Uh, the concept of flow from Chikset Mahai. Um, he's a psychologist who looked at a lot of motivation and his concept of flow um, is, is amazing to watch that actually happen in, 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 the, tech, in the computer therapy lab and seeing mm -hmm. people when they're using technology they lose sense of time. They lose sense of effort. They, they don't realize they've done so much in a, such a short period of time. Um, and it's really interesting to see everybody, interestingly enough, says, oh, I think I've done, you know, 30 to 45 repetitions, which is your typical three sets of 10 to 15, right? Mm -hmm. But when you show them, because I have something that, that counts the repetitions and I show them um, every time they, they, they use that movement pattern um, to complete the activity, um, and it goes up by one and they're like, did I really just do 350 repetitions? <laughs> like, yeah, hit it again. That's and they'll cool. do it again. They're like, okay, 351. And, and then they're, they're, they're really hooked. And it really, a lot of times tap, taps into mm -hmm. emergent motivation, which is another concept from Chikset Mahai. Um, and even if somebody isn't technologically savvy or has no interest in computers, um, typically once they get involved in the computer therapy lab and they see the relation to the technology with their goals and um, the functional component that we're focusing on, they're hooked and they want to come back. It's, um, it's kind of an interesting thing to see. That's amazing. There is so much you just said that I want to dive deeper into. Um, first of all, mm -hmm. I just want to thank, was it your sister or sister-in-law? My, my sister-in-law. Well, I thank her and your spite for bringing you into OT because what you're doing <laughs> is so cool. <laughs> um, well, it, it, I didn't create it. I just picked it up and, and, and enjoy doing it. So. Let's wind back a little bit and talk about sure. what is VR, because I think this is a term that's used so often. It's kind of a buzzword. It's a hot topic. That's why we're talking about it here, of course. And I think the idea of virtual reality was actually a little bit intimidating to people. And I think that a lot of people are using VR in their practice and don't even necessarily realize it. So for the sake of this conversation, go do you mind going ahead and defining for us what are we talking about when we move forward talking about VR, virtual reality? You might want a couple more beers. <laughs> <laughs> so the, uh, the, the problem comes into semantics and definition and um, level of analysis, which starts get heady. So I'm going to try not to say the, the heady area that gets into academic <laughs> things. But, the, but um, I think the confusion sometimes starts with understanding the virtual context versus what virtual reality is. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think starting with the virtual context. Um, so everything I do in the computer therapy lab, regardless whether it's immersive virtual reality with um, the Samsung Odyssey um, Windows Mixed Reality headset or the Oculus Rift or whatever, or using a computer with assistive technology to simulate a patient feeding themselves. Um, all of those are occur within a virtual context. They're all types of virtual reality. Um, so anytime that you're, you know, playing a video game on a console like Xbox or PlayStation, um, or you're doing a PC game online and you're playing, you know, a flash game online or something, um, all those are virtual realities and they're different kinds. And so that's where it starts to get tricky in the research. Whereas the virtual context is, is a very, very broad, term that I don't think as a profession we've defined very well yeah. and people think of the virtual context as virtual reality and it's not and and if, if you look at the practice framework I have it right in front of me right now I was just looking at that <laughs> there you go 
So if you look at the virtual context and what that is, there it is. And you have book style as well. Um, not just the PDF, but you actually have the book. Wow, I'm impressed. I, believe it or not, for a podcaster, I am old-fashioned. <laughs> Very good. Um, so if if you look at the and how we as a profession are in, in, in America are currently defining that virtual context, it's actually limiting because um, it's not just that electronic communication. It goes far beyond that. Um, so if you think about virtual context in a broad term before we get to VR is... Um, Think about our, our typical ADLs. Um, uh, so if you think from instrumental ADLs, like um, going to the bank and shopping, those are very um, physically based contexts that you do. Brick and mortar, you walk in, you pay, you, sh you get your pay your bills or whatever, you stuff your, your, your check in the mail. Um, whereas a lot, a lot of times people are doing things virtually. You can, you don't have to leave your house. You can get on your computer and pay your bills. You can withdraw money, you can Venmo somebody. Um, so, um, or if you're engaging in leisure activities, if you're, if you play um, my, my, in my family, there are a lot of big Scrabble players, everybody loves Scrabble, um, but you can also play word with friends. It can be very asynchronous. I can come up with my word today. And if you don't get to it till tomorrow, that's fine. Um, but it allows you to engage with others socially um, from anywhere in the world. And so you can take that tangible context or you can take that virtual context and still achieve the same things. Um, or for instance, you know, right now you and I are communicating on Skype. It's a virtual context, but the fact that you and I can see each other in real time mm -hmm. and talk is not virtual reality. And that debatably, it depends on the industry that you're talking to and how they view what virtual reality is. And there are many, many definitions of what virtual reality is. So if you look at, and I always try when, I, when I'm teaching somebody to frame my perspective first. Um, when I talk about defining virtual reality, I, the first thing that is to understand is I'm just defining it for you to understand now. Whenever you're reading research on virtual reality, you need to make sure that the research you're reading defines it so you have a perspective as to how they're viewing that research. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But um, the fact that you and I are talking in real life synchronously, it's a digital communication. The context is virtual. Mm -hmm. But that background, uh, you know, is is real. There's nothing that's generated um uh, created behind you. It is a represent a captured digital representation of the real world environment. And so it's not virtual reality. It's a virtual context. You and I are communicating. That's the, that's the, um, the occupation that we're doing, but it's in a virtual context. Instead of sitting across the table from me, mm -hmm. you're in Ohio. Um, so that's a, a virtual context, but it's real. In virtual reality, if you were an avatar and I was an avatar, and I couldn't really see you and everything was digitally created, was, was not real, but simulated. That's a virtual reality communication. So if we both put VR headsets on and went into a social VR room and we're chatting that way, that would be the same thing that we are doing now, but would be doing with virtual reality. So it's understanding the difference between the virtual context and virtual reality. And that's even just immersive virtual reality. There are several kinds, there's a broad spectrum of what virtual reality is. And that's that's where in practice things become a problem. So everybody sees most of the research that's out there. American Heart Association is the 
um, put out their stroke rehab guidelines, and that's what our stroke rehab program utilizes um, as our clinical practice guideline. They recommend, um, their recommendation is that virtual reality is an intervention that, that can be used. Not a great deal of strong evidence yet, but it's something that, that you should consider using. So in a nutshell, that's kind of what that is. But okay. if you actually look at the research, that refers to the Wii, the Kinect, and the PlayStation iToy video games, which is not an Oculus Rift. It's not Windows Mixed Reality. It's not a PlayStation VR. Um, it's not immersive. And so any video game you play is te technically, according to that research, virtual reality. Of course, yeah. But when people read that in today's terms and they see the word virtual reality, what's the first visual impression you have as somebody wearing a headset in an immersive reality? And so the first thing they're thinking is, oh, well, we should get an Oculus Rift and do virtual reality therapy. And that's really not what they're talking about. And so if you're looking at the research and they define virtual reality, but then the tools they're using are not what you're considering, you have to make sure that you if you're gonna use that recommendation, you are using similar or the same types of virtual reality activities um, that were done mm -hmm. in the research. So um, I think the easiest way is to, uh, and, and people think of it as, as a, a visual thing. And virtual reality is really complex. That's the first big thing to think about is most people think about it, it is a, when you're thinking about a virtual reality headset, it is very visually based. But if you think about virtual reality, it's a multi-sensory experience, 360 degree surround sound, directional sound. So you know, oh, I hear a sound and it's, you know, 30 degrees to my right versus it's behind me or to the front left of me at three o'clock or at 10 o'clock. Mm -hmm. That gives you a virtual sound that was created by someone who wrote the program for it and had spatial computing put that sound somewhere that you can perceive it as occurring somewhere else. Mm -hmm. It's not all virtually yeah. based. Then you also get into haptic feedback and things like that. But we all think about it virtually. Virtual reality is a visual thing. But so to keep that in mind, um, I, I'm going to really go from a framework of is it an immersive virtual reality or non-immersive? So things like uh, the Wii, things like uh, playing video games, uh, playing an online game, a flash-based game, um, or using an iPod or iPad or an Android tablet. Those are all could technically, in some research, when you read it, considered virtual reality. Um, but when you're talking about immersive, I, um, it is something that is multisensory and takes you away, and you, you're not interacting with and seeing the real world. And that occurs on a spectrum. Um, Milgram um, and, a, a, and his group did a, a seminal article out explaining that visual part um, back in the 90s. And on one end of the spectrum is the real environment. That's the thing that has real world physics that we're bound by. Mm -hmm. It's all the real life things that you see and interact with. Um, and on the other end of the spectrum is an entirely virtual environment. There is nothing in it that somebody did not create. And it's digitally created and placed in a position or simulating some kind of uh, sensation um, versus a real sensation that, that you would experience in a real environment. In between is something called mixed reality. And again, this is according to Milgram's visual uh, virtuality. And that mixed reality contains things like augmented reality, which is also in much of the VR research considered virtual reality, which it is, it's, it's, it's on that spectrum of reality versus virtuality. 
And, and augmented reality is, is one that people define as virtual reality. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I just want to jump in for people who, for, you know, for whom virtual reality is a new concept, or you've just sort of changed their mind about what it really, what virtual reality is. I'm very limited in my knowledge, but augmented reality would be something like Pokemon Go, right? So if we're familiar with that craze, is that something like augmented reality? And yes, and within augmented reality, there are different kinds of augmented reality. And so you can't look at one type of augmented reality if you're going to use it for therapy the same way. I'll give you an example. So like you said, Pokemon Go, you look at it through a phone. It's so the image is on your phone. It is a virtual environment, a virtual context. However, because of the camera, you see real life, real live stream of what's going on. So that's the real reality. So it's combining the two realities. And augmented reality is taking some digital representation and overlaying it over the representation of the real world. The difference comes in spatial computing. So with Pokemon Go, so you've got your phone and you can see the Pokemon standing in the grass. But as if you move closer, the mm-hmm. Pokemon's depth doesn't change. It doesn't get bigger as you get closer to it. It doesn't get farther away. Um, there's no depth to it. It doesn't change. That digital representation does, doesn't change. Um, whereas the HoloLens, the Microsoft HoloLens, actually takes the digital representation, anchors it to spatial points in the real world. You can walk around a three-dimensional image and walk to the backside and see what you can't see when you're standing on the other side. You can reach out, pick something up virtually and manipulate it, bring it in close, turn it around, maneuver it and put it back if you wanted to, or you could just throw it across the room. Those are both augmented reality. But the way that we as people interact with that is very different. And so if you're looking at therapeutic purposes, you can't do as much with Pokemon Go as you can do with the Microsoft HoloLens. They're both augmented reality, but they're very different types. Once you can anchor augmented reality and you can get into the spatial computing part of it, um, or with the, the, the Magic Leap that, that, that's, that's kind of coming out as the mm-hmm. main competitor right now, there's some incredible things, but yeah. um, they're very different from Pokemon Go. The other part of that is augmented virtuality. And we don't hear that much because... Um, Again, of the definition, it's just easier for people to call it things virtual reality. Augmented virtual reality is the opposite. So it's taking a virtual environment somebody created um, with, it could happen different kinds of physics if it wanted to, but then there's also a real life feed. So when you look at uh, the PlayStation iToy and there were video games, it basically it took a video, a live capture video of you moving and it's your interactions as you hit a digital image something would occur. You could interact with it virtually, um, but it's taking that real life, that reality um, and placing it in the virtual environment, in that virtual reality. So it's the opposite of augmented reality. Instead of taking digital and putting it over real, you're taking real and putting it over virtual. And they're very different concepts and you move very differently. Um, And the way that you attempt to interact is very different. The far end is that in fully immersive virtual reality, and that is nothing but perception. And you're perceiving these sensory inputs and your brain is trying to make sense of it. The great thing about virtual reality and on an immersive, if you're doing full immersive virtual reality, your brain doesn't always know the difference. So you are in a different world. The other thing is because someone creates the reality, they don't have to follow physics, which screws with your mind. 
it changes the way you have to problem solve how to move. One of the most uh, crazy things that you see is people with um, functional neurologic disorder or convert what used to be called conversion disorder. Mm-hmm. You put the uh, virtual reality headset on them and they start moving all over the place. They can't see their arm. All they're seeing is this virtual environment moving in response to the moving. And it's, it's very, very consistent. They just start moving and we explain it from a very functional standpoint that you know, we can't, you know, you know, fully explain why, but there's a disconnect between your body and the way that your brain is trying to control your body. Nothing, nothing in our testing and our imaging shows that there is a problem. We just know that there's this disconnect. It's just a functional disconnect. Interestingly, we think, and we, we, we tell them we can't tell, but we think because you're in a different perception, the virtual reality puts you somewhere else, that your, your brain has to really focus on how to move and manipulate that environment and all of a sudden you just, it helps us reestablish that connection. They allow us to videotape them. We show them what they can do. And then, then they start doing it outside of the virtual environment. It's really kind of interesting. Um, and I would love uh, uh, some research to kind of come out of that. It's, uh, but there's something about when you take away and create a physics that doesn't match with what we a- actually feel. Um, there's some pretty crazy, crazy things that happen, especially with patients with spinal cord injury. And um, really tapping into unknown uh, perception of movement, uh, proprioception. Once you take away the real world visual, they can only rely on what they're feeling and what they're seeing react. It's, it's really kind of interesting, much much longer than this podcast could be to go <laughs> over. But again, it's not the VR, but it, it's, it's how you use the VR, how you break the rules. One of the things that I do is... is um, is I don't necessarily follow the rules of the game of, in VR. I'm looking for a therapeutic effect. And so the cues that I'm giving, whether the tactile, verbal, cognitive um, strategies, um, you know, that all plays into how they're going to interact with the virtual environment. So it's, it's really important that you take a, a, an intervention that is identified in the research as effective and that you're using and just apply it in VR because VR is the tool, not necessarily the intervention. Um, and so when people talk about um, reimbursement for VR, if you're doing VR as the treatment, I wouldn't pay for it either. Um, so it, VR is just a tool like anything else I use in the lab, anything else mm-hmm. that we use in the clinic. It's what is the treatment intervention and strategy you're using? What is the goal that you're working on? If it's not goal directed and goal focused on the goal that you're working on, then you're really not doing occupational therapy anyway. And so the, the key is to make sure that you keep it occupation-based, you connect it to a goal, mm-hmm. and that you're using interventions that are, are effective. You're just using virtual reality as a context. Yeah, and, and that really isn't that much different from using any other intervention that would be in, at, I guess, full, full reality, real objects that are tangible and that you can interact with reality, I guess. Reality, yeah. Now I'm overthinking it. Yeah. Um, and so it's really not that much different. And I love what you're saying about it being a tool that we're using to reach therapeutic goals and that it's not the end goal in and of itself. It's a means to an end, as with so many other things that we do in OT. Uh, and with that, I, I've heard a kind of a range of perspectives on use of technologies and rehabilitation. And I'm also more focused on neurologic populations. So I'm sort of viewing it through that lens as well. But I see this sort of spectrum almost on one end, there's therapists who are really skeptical of any form of sort of advanced computer technologies 
in therapy and don't necessarily see their place within our scope of OT. Mm -hmm. And then I see on the complete other end, therapists who see any cool new technology as something they want to incorporate with every patient, or they're just so excited about it, not a bad thing, uh, but so excited about it, they're using the technology potentially more as an end or more of, of the focus of the intervention as opposed to an occupational goal. Um, and so it's really cool to hear you kind of identify that, that using virtual reality environments, participating in a virtual context, which we know now are, are two different things, um, can be used with any patient, any client who, who has a goal, right? And, and that's what we're, who we're working with, right? And so we can apply this to, to any goal. And there are and there are precautions and contraindications right. and um, <clears throat> anything that's borderline you have to you want to make sure you're clear with uh, the patient's physician. Sure. Um, and there are things and if you know, if if people who are listening do want to contact me to get some of those those things people can feel free to email me or um, uh, DM me on Twitter. My DMs are open, so that's something that afterwards, if people are interested, they can always um, just contact me, and I'm. Um, I'm very big on open sourced information. So um, if I share something, as long as people cite it, I'm very cool because the important part is to to get things out for people to use and not kind of to hoard on to information. So um, whether it's handouts or presentations, I'm I'm open to to share some of those things to help people understand, especially this concept because it can become fairly complex. Absolutely, and that's that's how we met. We met on Twitter because you were sharing some really cool resources yep. that I was interested in. So that's really helpful. Um, I would just kind of just kind of bring it back to specifically what you were talking about at the beginning of that question. I think um, using the technology, there are some technologies that are meant to be therapeutic. So there's there's everyday technologies that can be used therapeutically, which are is kind of what we've been talking about. Whether it's commercial VR um, or whether it's um, using a computer with assistive technology, and then just breaking all of the rules that are required for assistive technology. Um, and, and, and so in thinking about it that way, there are technologies though, that are made for therapy, whether it's electrical stimulation, um, transcranial magnetic stimulation, transcutaneous, uh, stimulation. Um, mm -hmm. so there are a lot of things or robotics, you know, those are interventions in and of themselves. And so that when, when you're looking at technology and research and reimbursement, if the technology is the intervention, and it can be, um, that's where you have to really have to have specific mm -hmm. research for that technology as an intervention tool, because um, that's the intervention that you're using. And that's why you see individual studies on robotics. There are virtual reality, both immersive and non-immersive mm -hmm. systems that are designed to provide the therapy. They take into account other... Um, strategies and interventions that are effective, but try to tailor the VR experience in a therapeutic sense that would require less on the, the therapist side and more on the, the tool side. So in that case, those virtual reality systems need to have the research. And when you're using virtual reality as a tool, um, again, it's, it's, it's the therapeutic strategies you're using. So whether you're choosing to use things that, that have been shown to be effective, like um, bilateral isokinematic training or visual scanning strategies, cognitive strategies like errorless learning or other kinds of cue uh, withdrawal strategies, you can apply those just in a virtual context with, with a tool in virtual reality to apply those. 
And what you see is just, it's another way to address it and in a different context. Now you could say, if you wanna do some efficacy studies, you could do some comparative studies of applying those same strategies in, a, in, a, in reality versus applying those strategies in virtual reality. And then you could see if there's one that's better than the other or what almost all the research always says is once you add do both, it's better than either alone. And, and, and that's kind of in practice the practice-based evidence we see is that that's kind of the case, is that when you start combining effective treatment interventions, it's always better than each intervention alone. They're not competing. Because um, to be honest with you, most of the patients that I see, 90% of the studies that most of us apply, um, my patients don't qualify for. So I technically shouldn't generalize that research to my patients, but I use my clinical reasoning to go, do I think this will be effective for my patient? Then I'll try it and kind of use a, a heuristic clinical reasoning approach and go, am I getting the same results that the research is suggesting I should get? If not, then my patient might not be appropriate for it. Mm -hmm. And that's where in all interventions, whether it's reality, virtuality, virtual context, whatever, the most important thing you can use is your clinical reasoning. And that is the key to using any of this effectively. Perfectly said. That's, I think that's kind of the, the key piece here for people who maybe are currently using virtual realities or, or something on that spectrum between reality and virtual reality. Um, and are trying to figure out is what I'm doing evidence-based. I think you're so right. We can glean what we can from the literature, combine that with our clinical judgment, apply it to a client-centered approach where we're seeing what's actually working for that person. You mentioned motivation as a huge as a huge piece. And if our patient's motivated by it, we're getting the results that we're looking for, whatever either skill we're we're addressing or greater occupational sort of top-down approach. I'm curious, you mentioned at the beginning about this idea that after hundreds of repetitions or maybe even thousands people that you're working with have lessened I guess a lessened sense of how much they've done and how much they're doing and I'm really interested in that perception of sort of the the experience of gaming because I think there's a lot of bad press out there about gaming and I kind of want to if you're willing kind of debunk that a little bit in the therapeutic context how gaming and that immersive flow experience can promote what we know about mm -hmm. neuroplasticity I think the biggest uh, concern that you hear from a lot of folks is, um, especially with the WHO's um, recommendations about concern over video game addiction. Mm -hmm. And I think if you look at it from the perspective of any addiction, um, when is it a bad thing? And when it, when it um, creates a situation where you can't function, then it's, it's a bad thing. But say you have a patient who um, has a, a disability that doesn't allow them to um, uh, say that they have a C4 uh, level spinal cord injury and they have dramatically decreased mobility and they want to find better ways to or more opportunities to either get back into gaming or get into game and have fun, have control over what the, uh, they're, they're, they're doing and find a social outlet. And gaming and getting online and, and playing virtually with someone from anywhere in the world or an entire community of people around the world, that can even the level the playing field. And so you can have somebody with, with a impaired mobility who can play video games with someone who does not. 
if you have accessible gaming tools available to you. And um, one of the things that we've been exploring um, is uh, Aaron Mustenfirsch and uh, and I, and um, I apologize that I'm forgetting her name. She's <laughs> going to kill me. She's a therapeutic recreation specialist at Craig. Okay, she is going to kill me that I'm I'm zoning on her name. I can always put it in the show notes. We'll give her credit. Don't you worry. Um, but we have been experimenting and, and practicing um, doing adaptive gaming, peer-to-peer cooperative gaming online. So we're hoping to kind of go live th- this month with that. So cool. And what it does is allow patients to be able to connect with someone who's not around where they're currently at, talk about what they're going through, have kind of this peer-to-peer interaction with their therapist, talk bad about us, whatever, share secrets about us with them. (laughs) Um, But then realize there is an entire community out there that they can access. And Mm -hmm. so their support were in places where they don't realize that their support, you don't have to leave the hospital and feel um, cut off from, from people from social opportunities. There is an incredible um, accessible gaming community, disabled gaming community out there. Um, millions of people online streaming. Um, and I, I could give you a host of, of people to look at on Twitch or on Mixer and just see how someone with a disability can do more than you give credit for. Because I think as therapists, we we have our own perspective Mm -hmm. and we miss a a huge perspective from the clients that we work with. And um, I think we have to spend more time paying attention to um, what our clients and what um, people who have disabilities are saying about how they want to participate in life and take more note of that than trying to be uh, the experts at telling them how they should be or could be participating in life. Um, I think I've learned more in the last year from the uh, uh, disabled gaming community than probably in the last 10 years uh, trying to be um, the best in the world at occupational therapy that I could to be. And, and, and years ago, I learned, and I, I wish I could remember where the, 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 the phrase came from, but there was a transition in my career where I went from trying to be the best occupational therapist in the world. I, you know, I think we all, when we graduate, want to be the best. We want to be the best that we can. (laughs) But then I, what I realized when working with a lot of my patients is that what was even more important was that I was the best for the patient Mm. in the world. And what I mean by that is not that I, again, not that I'm the best in the world, but I'm the best for this patient in the world. And that might mean, you know what, I've taken you as far as I know how to help you. I think I know somebody else who, who would be better than me. You're ready for this. And that's not necessarily a skill that I have, or you're ready for the next level. They're better for you. And when you take that approach where I want to be the best for this person in the world, the best OT in the world for, or for the world, for this person, then it changes how you kind of take a look at helping them and allows you to think bigger and broader. And so I have no problem um, telling my patients to, Hey, this, um, this person on Twitter or this person on Twitch who does um, accessible gaming is a great person. Mm -hmm. You will learn a lot more from them for what to do when you leave the hospital because they've lived your life, what you're going through right now. They've lived for like the past 15 or 18 years. They're going to tell you this is, these are things that you can expect that your therapist doesn't realize. They know more than we do. And, and, and when you connect them with that community, um, you help them much more than, what you can do if you don't. 
And so I think that's a, a lesson that we can all learn from. And the adaptive uh, gaming community, the, the disabled gaming community, just in the United States, there's over 21 million people. I think that's that's the last number that I heard. 21 mm-hmm. million um, wow. people in the United States with a disability who play video games. And that's a huge community. And if you can tap into that and we can encourage people to connect, create community beyond their their own local community, there is a lot of support out there. And if you need support, that gaming community um, will do a lot for you. And so I think it, it'll be interesting when when we kind of get this up and running, uh, seeing if that does what we think it'll do. Um, I think it's something that we should consider taking kind of that next step with. When you're talking about this really robust gaming community, which I had no idea there were that many you know, people who are, who are gaming in an adaptive way. That, that really interests me, especially currently living in the Midwest. I moved here from Baltimore, Maryland and really good connectivity. There's four major cities that are all within about a half an hour to an hour drive of each other, really well connected, easy to access anything you want, you know, within reason and and access communities. But living here has really taught me that the needs of people who are living more rurally is so important. And I have patients who come to see me from two hours away a couple times a week because this is the this is where they want to have their therapy and this is where they feel like they can get the best therapy for, for to meet their needs. And so I see this gaming community as an opportunity for peer mentorship beyond the the physical environment, which is so needed. Right. I think the a common theme I've seen among my patients with potentially new neurologic injuries is that they feel alone or that they're the only one experiencing that because the people maybe in their immediate uh, physical communities or geographic communities have an experience that they're not seeing anyone who kind of looks like them or is experiencing the same things as them. And so I see this as a really cool way for me to help my patients connect with people all around the world who who are having similar experiences and kind of bridge some of those gaps that maybe the physical environment creates. Yeah, there is um, there are some Discord servers out there. So Discord is a, a way that people can um, get together online and play video games together um, and communicate. And so there are several dif- Discord communities out there where um, they open up to disabled gamers. And so say um, someone jumps on and said, hey, I'm going to go play this game Friday night at six o'clock. Anybody want to squat up? Anybody want to meet up? And you, That's a great way to meet new people or meet up with friends who are on the server. And there are an amazing amount of people out there and they get on and they get on for supportive and collaborative play. And it's really very cool. Um, and so it's something that we as therapists, I think, take for granted about expanding beyond what we know and are comfortable with, which makes me think back earlier, you kind of talked about some therapists um, wanting to use all the technology that comes out and it's new and then some don't. And and it's something I've been talking about in um, Doug Rakowski, Dr. Rakowski, um, and I've been talking about for several years, uh, not only our profession, but I I think the the healthcare industry is kind of at this weird gap um, in, in how we're growing. So we have a lot of clinicians who have a lot of experience, a lot of expertise with a lot of great clinical reasoning based on a world where we and they grew up as technology grew with us. 
where it's a, a lot of the therapists and doctors and nurses who are coming out um, grew up with the technology. They were born with computers. They were born with cell phones. They don't know what a rotary phone is. I mean, so the, the level of understanding of technology is very different. I'm still, I'm still a little confused about how those rotary phones work. So I'm, I'm with that group. <laughs> it's okay. <clears throat> so, uh, so when, when, when the, the, these therapists who are very tech savvy come along, they're early practitioners, their level of clinical reasoning and how to be creative and break the rules. That's, I say, when I say break the rules, I mean it in a positive way. I don't mean doing it in a nefarious kind of thing, but it's, it's about that creativity. I can look, this is how this is supposed to be used. I know how this works. I needed to do this. If I do this and I do it in a different way, then I can work on this goal. And what we need is therapists who are tech savvy to learn from therapists with advanced clinical reasoning. And the folks with advanced clinical reasoning need to be open to moving away from dogmatic treatment practices that you grow comfortable with. Because as you gain more experience, you get really comfortable because you know what works with your patients. And it's harder to go, this might be either better or would be a good augment to what I already do. And so it's getting over that comfort zone and going, you know what, I need to embrace the technology. And folks who are, are really good with the technology who may not have that level of deep clinical reasoning, take that as an opportunity to go, I can really learn how to, to, to clinically reason at a higher level and collaborate and work together. That sounds like such a cool opportunity for mutually beneficial mentorship among sort of more experienced seasoned clinicians and newer clinicians that I think I maybe have seen informally, but I think that could be really cool to have more sort of formal, but also still kind of organic relationships where we can interchange information. That sounds right. so cool. Yeah. I mean, we, there's this real big gap and it's, you know, if you think about what future practice is going to be in the next 10 to 15 years, technology is going to be a major factor because like we talked about earlier, we are continually moving away from a very, um, um, tangible activities to many, many more virtual activities. Mm. Um, you're still going to have tangible things to do, but most, a lot of our IADLs are going to become more and more virtually based. Um, so it's, it's like the difference between, um, recreational activities when we, our profession was founded over a hundred years ago, the technologies that were used there and the activities and the recreational things are very, very different. And as a profession, we have to not only recognize that change, but embrace the roots, understand the t- change that we're at, but also we need to do a better mm-hmm. job of anticipating how occupation is going to look in 10 or 15 years and prepare ourselves for that. And 3D printing is now only catching on. Why? It's been around for a long enough period of time. It is, it's much more affordable. Um, why aren't we doing that to really make some really crazy cool things um, and be creative? Um, and so those are things that we have to think about. But not only that, but what does that mean in 10 years in the future? Can we do a better job of anticipating how occupation is going to evolve? And it's really what it is. I mean, if you look at the evolution of occupation um, and Dr. Uh, like Roger Smith said at the Centennial and uh, when he was talking about 
progression. I mean, the telephone 100 years ago was this amazing piece of technology, um, but who would have thought 100 years ago that our phone would actually be, you know, allowing us to communicate not only around the world, mm -hmm. but to play a game over the course of a couple of weeks without having to worry about it, you know, or to be able to uh, online dating. Yeah. You can find the, the person of your dreams virtually. Dating is completely different than it was 100 years ago. So, you know, how are we going to anticipate occupation changing? The way that we communicate um, is going to continue to change. You know, how are we going to, as a profession, preparing ourselves for that? And so that's where um, I, I loved Dr. Lamb's um, uh, address this year, her farewell yeah. address, where she started talking about and introducing um, getting our profession to be more bold and innovative. And I think innovation is going to be a big key for our mm -hmm. profession moving forward. Um, it doesn't mean abandoning our roots. It means embracing our roots, but also embracing how occupation mm -hmm. is going to continue to evolve. And it's all technology, occupational technology. But how we view it is going to be from, like you were talking about, your perspective. The whole rotary phone thing for you doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. For me, I grew up with it. It makes complete and total sense. And um, and so it, your perspective and my perspective are different, but it doesn't mean that either of us are wrong. It doesn't mean either of us mm -hmm. are right either. But what it means is we need to, to, to talk, come together and go, how do we envision what occupation is going to look like? And what are we going to do to prepare not only our current therapists, but how do we prepare the, the next generation of therapists to be not only ready for that change, but to maybe lead the change? I don't know about you, but I am so inspired by Rob's calls to action to both anticipate the evolution of occupation and lead the change. I notice a common theme among OT practitioners of all ages and stages of practice that, you know, to reference this year's Eleanor Clark Slagle lecture, they know they're competent, but maybe aren't confident in their role in progressing occupational therapy into the future. As Rob and I continue talking, we cover topics of mentorship, low cost versus expensive technologies that can be used therapeutically, and so much more that can help us take these next steps toward anticipating the evolution of occupation. So I really hope you'll tune in for part two, which is coming soon to a podcast player near you. Thank you for listening to this episode of OT Uncorked. For access to the resources mentioned and to add your voice to the conversation, visit the resource blog at otuncorked.com and leave a comment. You'll also find out more about the local craft beers we enjoyed. If you liked this episode, share OT Uncorked with a friend, hit the subscribe button, and most importantly, don't forget to tune in for the next episode, part two of my interview with Rob, to hear about next steps you can take to integrate tech into your practice. Thanks again for listening. Cheers. Cheers.